Okay, well, we are here in James chapter 5, and uh, as you can see, the title of today's uh, sermon is Woe to the Rich, and um, as we will see this morning, uh, it is not a, a, one of those light topics. I mean, again, I, the gospel is never light, but here in particular, uh, we see the weight of James's pastoral heart in regards to his congregation. And we see the seriousness of this topic that weighs through his heart throughout the entirety of this epistle. The things that he was subtly and sometimes not so subtly hinting at in regards to finances, to wealth, to riches, is directly addressed in this passage this morning. And I wanted to kind of do a brief survey of the things that James has mentioned as we prepare our hearts for this text this morning. And right off the bat in chapter 1, you can look down at your phones or in your Bibles. I'm going to just be going through rapidly uh, these uh, next several passages. But right off the bat, he starts off with the concept of suffering. And undoubtedly, part of that suffering was financially related. Because it is peppered throughout the rest of this epistle. Now, he, he refers to this suffering as, as varied and, and mirrored, multifaceted. But quickly, he transitions in verse 9. Look there. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. And he tells them the fate of the rich. And, and mind you, as we go through these passages, you're going to see that in general, the rich are not looked upon very favorably. And in fact, it can be very damning, as we will see in this passage. The next passage I want to look at is chapter 1, verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. There's a proactive nature to the way in which we use our finances and our wealth. Chapter 2, starting in verse 1. Rather long section, but I wanted to read for us. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, Lord of glory. For a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? 
Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Chapter 2, 14, 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Chapter 4, 1 through 5. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly. You spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. And then finally, the passage right before us this morning, before this section, chapter 4, verse 13 to 17. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. As we survey James and see the pastoral heart of this elder over this early church, you quickly get a sense of what is on his heart. And that is the, the nature of wealth, of wealth management, that our faith is directly tied to how we think and how we use money. And this morning is no different because this is going to sum up his warnings in regards to this topic. It is a topic in which is evident not only here in James, but throughout the rest of Scripture. And we're going to see some of these passages. Let me pray for our time as we go to the Lord's Word. And then, um, and then we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for another opportunity to come to your word. Humble our hearts that we may receive it. And in turn, we may be able to live it out. And especially as we heed and hear the warnings of riches from James. Lord, prick our hearts so that we would not be an enemy of God, one that is preoccupied with this world and its riches, but rather that we would submit our hearts, our very lives to you, that we may be pleasing to you. 
We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> we begin today with the outline, okay? And it really speaks uh, today as an Old Testament warning because it, it's modeled after the woes of the Old Testament prophets. And often, the Old Testament prophets, before the, the, the age of captivity, before the, the northern tribes, the ten northern tribes, and the two southern tribes were taken off to captivity by Assyria and Babylon, respectively, you had the prophets of old calling for repentance. And not only that, they were called to lament in a series of woes to the nation of Israel and Judah for their idolatry. And often, it was in regards to their thinking of wealth and riches. And we're going to go through some of those passages. But here... In James 5, we see uh, James's stern warning in regards to the rich. In regards to the rich. Look at there, verse 1. The first is the woe to the rich. Verse 1. Come now, you rich. Weep and howl for the miseries that are coming Upon you. Now, the first question we have to ask as, as James is addressing them is who are the rich? Right? And it seems if you're basing it upon the context immediate before and after, he's addressing the brethren. But he takes a market turn here in these six verses and addresses the rich. So is it believers? Most likely not. Okay, most likely it's unbelievers, but it, it, it can include those that profess faith, but really are not. And the reason why we're couching it this way is because for the believers, and there's language here that shows that's damning to the degree that it damns their souls. And really, that's not the picture of, of believers. But it could be of those that think they are, but substantially they don't really have what, a, a good idea of what true believer is. And here, James is uh, addressing a, a group of people within the early church that could include believers uh, in the congregation. But I believe, nevertheless, it's those that are in this uh, demographic, in this, uh, um, what is it, state of being rich. And uh, as we mentioned last time, this was a small subset of the overall population. And even as, as uh, Pastor Nam was going over slavery, we understand that the majority of that population was not very wealthy. But, the, but those that were, were extremely wealthy. 
And it seems as though uh, James is addressing many landowners, many of those that are in a position of uh, um, obscene wealth. And usually it was in the form of owning land and garments, and as we'll see here in, in the passage, or in precious metals. And this is who James is addressing. And it's a stern warning to all those that find themselves in this state of mind as well. And not only a state of mind, but living a life that results from being rich. It is not enough, as James addressed in the previous section here in chapter 4, that we acknowledge God in all our pursuits, because that was the point of it, right? But he is much more pointed here and saying, look, the very nature of riches is entrapping. And it is evident throughout the rest of Scripture. Hebrews 5 8 through 12. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field until there is no more room. And you are made to dwell alone in the midst of the land. The Lord of hosts has sworn in my hearing, surely many houses shall be desolate, large and beautiful houses without inhabitant. For 10 acres of vineyard shall yield but one bath and a homer of seed shall yield but an ephah. Woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may run (laughs) after a strong drink, who tarry late into the evening as wine inflames them. They have lyre and harp, tambourine and flute, and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the works of his hand. Here's another prophet, Amos. Hear this word, you cows of Bashan, who are on the mountain of Samaria, who oppress the poor, who crush the needy, who say to your husbands, bring that we may drink. The Lord God has sworn by his holiness that behold, the days are coming upon you when they shall take you away with hooks, even the last of you with fish hooks, and you shall go out through the breaches, each one straight ahead, and you shall be cast out into Hammon, declares the Lord. These two prophets ministered to the northern tribes as well as the southern tribes. And in both instances, it was a time of great plenty. And in that time, the Israel It was during the time of plenty among the Israelites, often that they would end up abusing one another. And especially uh, the difference in wealth. Those that were wealthy were wealthier would in fact abuse their brother, the brethren, their fellow uh, people of Israel uh, financially. And, um, and uh, Isaiah and both Amos speak to that, okay, that during the time of wealth where there is no war going out and there's, you know, they're not having to deal with the people from without. But now, because there's so much plenty and they're, they're sitting in their own wealth, they are indeed oppressing their own brethren. 
The other passage I, I want to share with you is found in Revelation 18, 15 to 19. As we've lost the, the, uh, the screen there, you can turn in your phones or uh, into your Bibles there. I'll read that for us. The merchants of these wares who gained wealth from her will stand far off in fear of the, her torment, weeping and mourning aloud. Alas, alas, for the great city that was clothed in flying linen and purple and scarlet adorned with gold, with jewels and with pearls. For in a single hour, all his wealth had been laid waste and all shipmasters and seafaring men, sailors and all whose trade is in the sea stood far off and cried out as they saw the smoke of her burning. What city was like this great city? And they threw dust on their heads as they wept and mourned, crying out. And you might not really get the flavor of what's going on there. But these are the judgment pronounced to Babylon. And this, the great city uh, uh, or characterizing its great wealth. But that wealth in the end days, in the day of the Lord, will be all for naught. And you see this great weeping and mourning. It's a picture, again, of warning that those that trust in wealth will find it all to be vain and empty. And the Lord Jesus himself, in Luke 6, 24 to 26, I'm going to read that for us. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now, for you shall be hungry. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. As you see that James, as he sat under the uh, teaching of Jesus, his half-brother, and he's, he's recounting what even what Jesus himself had taught to his people. That those that are in a position of wealth and of rich can do much harm to their souls if they are trusting in those things. And he echoes it throughout his epistle. Weep and howl. You see that in verse 1? He says, for the rich to weep and howl. This is a term of great suffering and lament, of shame and remorse. As the prophets call their people to weep and lament and howl. Olelu is the great, it's the Greek word. It means to cry out, expressing passionate nature of grief. And so for the rich, you are to lament and how and grieve. And here's the reason why. Because the miseries that are coming upon you. And you uh, just look, take your eyes down to verse 8. Because that is where James is taking us. James is taking us to the return 
of the Lord. And in that time, there's a there's twofold thing, there's two things that are happening. In the when the when scripture talks about the day of the Lord, it is a day of reward and consummation for the believer. But it is a day of accounting and reckoning for the unbeliever. And that's why we think it's most likely unbelievers here that James is referring to. That as you realize these things that are coming upon you, that as you sit in your wealth and your riches, there are miseries that will be coming. That word miseries can be uh, alternately translated wretchedness, distress, trouble. This is the great day when there will be an accounting. And the way that we think of riches plays a significant part in that judgment. That those that find themselves trusting and thinking upon their riches rather than of the Lord will find that there will be an ultimate reckoning. Do we have it back up? You want me to do something with this? No? Okay, sorry. All right, we, we have to move on. We've got a lot to cover here. <clears throat> Point number two. Woe for their worth, worthless hoarding. James is going to kind of systematically dress down the rich and, and see and char- characterize their thoughts and their lifestyle and make it plain to show how deep their idolatry goes. And what you see here in, in verses 2 and 3, For your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded. Their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You see, in verse 2 and 3, the riches, and that idea of riches is a general term for wealth and riches. It can encompass uh, garments, as you see here, that he delineates right after, or it can be precious metals. Or it can, again, be uh, measured in terms of their land wealth. And he's saying that these things are corrupted. His garments are moth-eaten. His gold and silver are corrupted. And if you know anything about silver and gold, the very nature of their preciousness is that, in general... They don't rust. They don't corrupt. But the point here that James is making is that they are ultimately, when they stand before the Lord, in that day, they will be worthless. 
So when you see James here referring to their riches have rotted, have corrupted, their garments have been moth-eaten, their gold and silver have corroded, it is a reference to their ultimate worthlessness before the Lord. And in fact, this is evidence. This word there you see at the end of verse 3, the evidence, it will be a witness against you. So as you stand before the Lord and you see all the things that you've accumulated and you're standing before him and you see they're but pile of rubbish. This is a witness against you because all of your life has been committed to the accumulation of that. It is in the perfect tense, meaning that this is a prophetic perfect tense. This is something that is surely to come. As we think about... Now, look, I think one of the things that we need to mention at this point is that you know, it, it can be easy for us because you might be thinking, well, I'm just a student. I don't have any money, okay? Right? Or even of those that have jobs and are making money, right? Oh, I'm just middle class. Understand, like, you know, in terms of... Uh, uh, we live in a, a time when we would have been the richest people back then. Okay, and understand we, you know, as a society, I mean, we you have to really understand the whole of history, and we live in a in a time, in a century, in a country that is of great and obscene wealth. No other time in human history can we understand this kind of dynamic where there is um, like almost like you have to expect, or I think the right word is there is an expectation that you're going to live a certain life and live especially a self-determined life that we talked about last, week, uh, last time in regards to the previous passage. Because in large part, Financially, most, if not all, can determine our future. And for the majority of this population that this is being written to, that was foreign to them. Their lives were, by and large, predetermined because of their status and wealth. But for us today, that's not the case. For most of us, we live, uh, you know, um, akin to those that could be even here, the rich here, right? All to say, I think all of us need to take seriously these warnings and whether we are, in fact, accumulating and gathering worthless things. I think that's the main point here in verses 2 and 3. 
Are we, in fact, investing in things that are ultimately going to be corrupted, that are going to be ultimately worthless? Or are we investing in eternal things, in God's word, in his people, in our worship of him? For these are the things that will last. But the riches of this world will be corrupted. And if we invest in these things at the end of days, when God judges all things, they will be a witness to you. And there will be a great consequence. There's a great payment for it. It will eat your flesh like fire. The very things that are worthless will in fact be a witness against you and your judgment will be in turn, your flesh will be taken by fire. Again, we see judgment language here. We see the last days language here. You have laid up your treasure in the last days. You have hoarded. That's the idea there of laid up. You have hoarded treasure. You have hoarded worthless treasure in the last days. Brothers and sisters, as you think about what you are hoarding, what are you investing in? What are you laying up? The lotto is at 300-something million. And the reason I know that is because I see it at every liquor store that I pump my gas in. Okay. And because I want to win it. (laughs) I know, I know. We are all in the business of, of accumulating wealth. And sometimes we daydream because we feel like we don't have enough. And we set our eyes and our hearts and our hopes upon more accumulation of laying up and laying up and laying up. And we feel like, oh man, you know, if... If I could win the lotto, I can buy the church, church a building. <laughs> I know you because I know me. Oh, you know, I'm not going to be corrupted. I'm strong in the force. You know, brothers and sisters, you know, as I was processing that, I was thinking about that. I think there's a reason why God doesn't let us win the lotto, right? I think he, if he's going to be kind to you, really, and good to you, he's not going to let you win, okay? I think passages like these give great evidence that's very difficult to be rich and be in the Lord, Because you put your hopes and 
your dreams on the riches rather than God himself. And Matthew 6, the Lord's Prayer. Give us this day our daily bread. That no longer becomes a reality for those that are obscenely rich. And so if you ever wonder, well, you know, I played the lotto so many times, but God doesn't give it to me. There's a reason. He wants your heart. He wants your devotion because he knows that oftentimes the riches itself will carry your heart to itself. And for those that buy into it, there will be a great reckoning. It will eat your flesh like fire. So this is not a small thing. This is a damning thing. It's not a temporary thing. It's an eternal thing. Our souls are in peril when we are in the business of laying up treasures in this lifetime. Do not lay up yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We read passages like this. Do we take it seriously? Do we really believe that riches have such a significant impact or can have such a significant impact that it can ultimately be damning? Thus, the stern warnings from Scripture. Verse 4. Woe to their fraud. Verse 4. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you. And the cries of the harvester have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. It pictures that those that are in positions of wealth, the wealthy landowners, have frauded their workers by withholding their just wages. You, you would think that at, one, at some point the rich will have enough that they think, you would think, oh, you know what? I'm good. But the very nature of wealth accumulation and riches, it continues to suck you in and in and deeper and deeper to the degree that it affects your thinking, and ultimately your morals. And you see here that those that had great wealth were even shysting, frauding, robbing. That's the idea here. Stealing and robbing. Those that are just trying to make a living, a fair day's wage. 
And James is calling them out here. Behold, the wages of the laborers who, you, who mowed your fields, you kept back by fraud. They're crying out against you. This is another indictment. Was this something hypothetical that James is, is, uh, is uh, sharing with his congregation? I think it's things that he's seen firsthand because it happened again with the people of Israel. That's what Amos was talking about. You're robbing and stealing your own people. And by the time of Jesus, I, I don't think that there's any difference those that were in positions of wealth and power continued to press down on the lowly. For those that were just day-to-day workers that counted on those wages for daily living, they were kept back by fraud. It was something that the Lord, as, as the people of, of Israel were going into, I'm going to read that Deuteronomy 24 passage. <clears throat> you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day before the sun sets, for he is poor and counts on it, lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. God already knew it. God already knew that those that were wealthy continue to pile on or have a desire to pile on their riches, so much so that they're willing to defraud their brothers and sisters and even potentially the sojourner, the strangers. And so God gives a stern warning. Again, I think it's a principle for for which we need to take to heart. You know, what are the depths that we're going to go to in order to continue to accumulate wealth? As you search in your heart, is it to make others suffer at the expense of others? I think James is talking to, again, a very small subset uh, of, of the population. Nevertheless, uh, you know, those were the ones that their souls were in peril. And he is giving a stern warning to them. And not to live a life of fraud. You see the, the workers, their, their cries are reaching out. You see also, at the very end of it, it's appealing to the Lord of hosts. And that idea, point back, it's the Lord of armies. It's what David had proclaimed of of God in 2 Kings 19.35. Okay. But one angel was responsible for killing 185,000 people. 
Again, this is the language of judgment, meaning those that have been oppressed, that have been wronged, they are crying out to the one that can reap perfect justice. And make no mistake, there will be a day in which the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, will return and mete out perfect justice to those that are committing fraud. I'm going to move a little bit quicker here. Point number four. Woe to their indulgence. You have lived on earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. James here further characterizes those that are rich, that they are living on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. They have fattened their hearts. They have indulged their passions and desires. That idea of fatten means to nourish, to provide food. And you see this word picture here, that they are, in fact, stuffing themselves. Stuffing not literally with food, but stuffing their passions. The Super Bowl is today. Some economists have estimated that for Vegas and Nevada, the Super Bowl itself is uh, bringing in about 500 million worth of uh, economic activity. Okay. And... uh, There's a lot of money being passed around, okay? Um, There's a lot of wealthy people in this world, okay? And and yet, um, if you ask the ultra-rich, and here's a, a, a sample of a survey that was done by uh, the ultra-rich. They surveyed people that had amassed at least $25 million. Okay. And one of the things that they're finding is, despite their great wealth, many are miserable. And in fact, even in their misery, they are continuing to worry about accumulating more and more wealth. Because once you get a private jet, it's not enough to have one. Once you can afford a suite for the Super Bowl, it's not enough to have just one. Many of those that responded said that they wouldn't feel financially secure until they attained $1 billion. So you see the mindset of 
those that make more than 25 or have more than $25 million won't feel secure until they have $1 billion. It is, it's like a snowball, right? It's one that you, as you are in that process of accumulating more and more wealth, it just keeps on going and going. And once it gets rolling, it's hard to stop. That's a general statement even on sin. But on, in regards to wealth, we see the reality laid out even in Scripture. It makes you your slave. Matthew 6.24 No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, for he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. It's interesting that Jesus uses God and money. Why didn't he use God and sex? Why didn't he use God and family? Or any number of things that can be idolatrous. He's very specific to money. He's revealing the fact, as the rest of scripture reveals, that money has an inborn dynamic of making us idolize it. It grabs our hearts and clings to it. As you process and think about what is it that you indulge in? What is it that you are fattening your hearts with? What is it that fills your passions and desires? Because that's the language here. What is it that fattens your desires? What it's saying here is money has an effect where once you start, it'll just consume you. For the love of money is root of all kinds of evils. For through this craving, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. We have instances and examples of uh, believers that were are rich in scripture those are outliers they're the exceptions okay and even in the church today there are many of those that are wealthy and use it for the glory of god but we need to take these warnings seriously to the very nature of accumulating riches and wealth, the love of money will curse us. So brothers and sisters, as you evaluate your hearts before the Lord this morning and and see the very nature of what riches can do, so, well, yeah, I'm I'm not going to be affected. I'm the exception. You may be, okay? But know that, again, 
we have to guard our hearts. We have to guard our hearts. Lastly, woe to their oppression. In verse 6, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist to. This is akin to uh, uh, verse 4 where they're defrauding. But here, they take it another step. You have condemned. You have used the court system. You have murdered the righteous person. Taken together, it means to take away the means to make a living. Is it literal murder here? I don't think so. I think they are using this court system and their power to defraud and to take away the means of living for the righteous person. They're using everything in their power to keep down and oppress those that are already down. But you see here, it's the just person. And he says earlier in James, those that are poor are exalted. But the view of the rich are that they will continue to put down and oppress. Again, you know, it's, it's unbelievable the, the way in which um, the world works because once you have money, you have significant influence um, uh, among others, including the judicial system including uh, how justice is supposed to be meted out. It's about who you know and what you can provide, unfortunately. And we see it even to today, that those that are rich can game the system and and oppress the poor rather than themselves being uh, the recipients of justice. Brothers and sisters, you know, these warnings we need to heed, even though, again, it's describing those that are unregenerate and have given themselves over to this world and to its wealth. For us that are in Christ, I want to leave us with this last verse, okay? In in 1 Timothy 6, his final uh, commands to Timothy, as for the rich in his present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes in the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take a hold of what's truly life. Throughout this epistle, the theme of wealth and riches is a serious topic that James is helping us try to understand. And that once we take riches up and, and go in that, that path, it is often, and here in, in James chapter 5, it's a damning path. 
I pray that as a church, as a people of God, that we would take this warning and make sure that we are evaluating it and that it is pure, that we are indeed meditating upon good works and how to use the resources of God for the benefit of his kingdom rather than a constant accumulation and hoarding it. All right. Well, that was heavy. Okay. Um, let's go to the Lord in prayer and take some time to think upon these things as we've been confronted with his word, the seriousness of it, and take some moment now to evaluate where your heart is in regards to riches and to wealth, and then I'll lead us in, in our closing prayer. Lord, it, we, none of us, none of us are exempt. It is so easily distracting, this concept of riches. It is so entangling. It is so easy for our hearts to idolize it. And it is so evident in your word that that is so. So we pray that you would guard our hearts, that in fact you would direct our hearts to the person and work of Jesus Christ as we see him and in his glory that we would really treasure him above all else. There's no other way we can do it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would help us as a, as a church, as a people, to treasure Christ each and every day, that we may be uh, blameless before you and ultimately give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name.